This is the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein. Richard is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He's the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU and is a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. And Richard, I imagine you have some pretty happy former students because President Biden finally followed through on one of his campaign promises to forgive some student loans. Now, some details. The White House announced today that the Department of Education would forgive up to $20,000 in student loans to students who had Pell Grants and $10,000 for non-Pell Grant recipients. But don't worry, no one in the top 5% will benefit because the cutoffs are for income are $125,000 if you're single and two fifty dollars if you're married. Richard, this is an astronomical price tag. It's estimates at $300 to $500 billion in costs, which, if you recall, the Inflation Reduction Act um, had some new tax revenues to, to pay for it, which totaled about that much. So any new uh, any new taxes from the Inflation Reduction Act have just been wiped out. Now, the way I understand the Constitution is that tax and spending decisions are authorized by Congress, but it's President Biden who just unilaterally made this happen. So I've got to know, legally, how is this been, being done and who can challenge it? And is it a done deal? Well, you're asking all of the hard questions to which I do not have the obvious answer. I, the one thing I can say is that many of my former students, owing to their great abilities, are in fact in that top 5%, so they will not benefit it. Many of my students have long since paid off their loans, so they will not benefit it as well. The obvious situation is they're going to be affluent progressives who tend to vote Democrats, who have kind of mid-level jobs, who will get the enormous benefit, um, as is already the case. It's quite clear that anybody who didn't go to college and has a working income will have to pay the taxes uh, in taxes for what everybody else has. Now, here's what you say. You said that only Congress has the power to make appropriations. This is technically not an appropriation. It's a forgiveness. Uh, but it clearly cannot be the case under the Constitution that the president simply has a general and arbitrary power to decide that certain debts to the federal government are going to be forgiven and others are not. Uh, so, for example, if it turns out that somebody owes money for the federal government for services that they receive, can the United States simply say, hey, we don't want to charge that particular money, you're all forgiven. Probably not. And so what happens is what they're going to argue is that the president has received delegated authority uh, from the Congress um, in order to uh, make this particular role. And in the analysis that has been put forward under this particular case, um, we basically have a very dangerous acronym which now becomes national public policy. The Higher Education Relief Opportunities for Students, the HEROES Act of 2003, is set to provide the authorization for the president to make these kinds of situations. I assume from the date of its passage, 2003, we were worried about the kinds of dislocations that happened with the Iraqi war. Uh, but the general language of the statute reads this, this situation as that essentially the act authorizes the secretary, and here I'm reading, uh, to waive or modify any statutory or regulatory provision applicable to the federal student loan program, um, which covers both interest and principle with respect to going on. And uh, the key phrase seems to be that the waiver of modification has to be necessary to ensure that the student loan recipients who are affected by a natural emergency are not placed in a world position financially. Now, this is a very tricky kind of provision because it turns out there's certain condition precedents to which the waivers can take place. And what the Biden administration has said essentially is that we are still in some kind of a COVID emergency that this is going to happen. 
Uh, the definition of emergency may be elastic, but I don't believe it's that elastic. Uh, what may have been true about the way in which you treated COVID in March of 2020 is one thing. The way in which you tried to teach this when everything else has become normalized in 2022 uh, is, I think, a very, very different question. Uh, if you start looking around, there are no signs of emergency generally. You don't have to wear masks on airplanes. Institutions are now widely up. Uh, schools are letting kids back in and thank heaven are removing the mass from sorts going on. Uh, the Omicron virus seems to be one that spreads very rapidly but doesn't create very many deaths. And so if you're trying to figure out whether or not there's a global emergency, you'd like to see some documentation of that uh, because if it's a condition precedent to giving the money, it cannot simply be, or at least it should not simply be, that the president has the unilateral power at any time for any reason in any place to declare this kind of an emergency. We also know that to the extent that they tried to do this through the CDC in connection with claiming that it was a health measure to sort of forgive uh, rents from people who were faced with eviction and things of that sort, that was actually struck down by the Supreme Court. There's also a more general doctrine which is floating about there and will come to bear on this case, which is that the non-delegation doctrine, which used to be toothless, is now thought since a case called Gundy back in 2019 or so, uh, now to have some real kind of teeth. And that means, in effect, when you delegate a power to somebody, he has to stay within the delegated limits, which means, in effect, that there's going to be, if you could get the court, a judicial testing of what it is that constitutes an emergency. It's also, I think, that you're going to have to ask the next question. If you assume that there was a global emergency, is everybody going to be affected by it? And so you start looking at the class and, you know, we are talking about a married couple with $250,000 in income. That puts them in probably the top 15% of the income population as a couple, give or take. And then the question you have to ask is, well, what's the evidence that this particular family is suffering? Suppose it's current with respect to its mortgage or with respect to its um, uh, rental payments on its lease. Suppose that, in fact, its debt ratios on the cards are pretty low. And suppose they're going on about as well as they've always gone on uh, because during the uh, pandemic, what they did is they tended to save. And now when they're spending, they're back to normal level. And so the question is going to be, can you simply presume that everybody who is within this period is somebody who's quote unquote affected by the natural emergency. And then in effect, you have this question, they're not placed in a worse position financially with respect to their loans as a result. That again, cannot be a global kind of uh, determination. It's something which if you're taking seriously, you actually have to take applications in from people and ask them to explain where it was and how it was that it turned out they became compromised by the situation that we have. Uh, so what you do is you get two leaps of faith in this particular case, one on the definition of emergency, another on the definition of somebody who is sorted out to be adverse affected in the particular case. I don't think that they could possibly do this. I think, in effect, what it means is that you're going to have to make individualized determination. There is an illustration that was done with Betsy DeBose in which she is said to have had a class forgiveness of $150 million, which is chump change compared to uh, the billions that are involved here. But she was forced to do so under a court order. And that completely changes the nature of this situation because there's no external uh, compulsion whatsoever that's associated with this. So then you ask another question. This is also a very big killer, is who can challenge this? Well, the United States Constitution essentially has two kinds of transactions, and they have very different treatments under the law. In the first situation, 
what happens is the government comes after you and says you are now going to be required to pay a certain sum of money or to do a particular kind of act. And in general, since the beginning of the standing doctrine, going back over 100 years now, about 100 years, um, people who are essentially in the path of government coercion always have standing. Uh, but the government now gives much more out by way of benefits than it used to do 100 years ago. And so then the question is, who is it who has the quote unquote pocketbook interest to be challenged to challenge the gift of Mr. X on the grounds that it's going to raise the tax on Miss Y and everybody else? And in the cases called Frothingham and Mellon and Massachusetts v. Mellon, uh, Justice Sullivan, in what I regard as one of the worst ever constitutional positions, said that there's nobody who is standing to deal with this particular problem because everybody's been affected you know, uniformly. And so therefore, you do not have somebody with a discrete and concrete interest isolated from everybody else who could bring a lawsuit. This is all fiction as far as I'm concerned. Start from the beginning. And what the Constitution says, uh, the judicial power shall extend to all cases in law and equity. The word standing is not there. The word case is meant to exclude advisory opinions when somebody asks for advice from the Supreme Court when there's no party who's on the other side. And since the J Supreme Court back in the 1790s, the Supreme Court does not have advisory jurisdiction. But there is a basic tradition in state law courts, which says that if you are part of an organization, a municipal government or a private corporation or a voluntary association, and your officers decide that they are going to give away your assets to some outsider, any particular shareholder, any particular citizen within that community, any member of that association, in effect, may go to court and sue to enjoin the illegal transfers being ultra virus. And if he wins, he gets compensated from the fund that is created by the money that he brings back to the situation. If he loses, he has to go out on his own. That's, of course, is the correct method to apply to the federal government, but it may not apply. At this particular point, then, you're going to be faced the question, is there anybody who's in a position uh, to challenge what's going on here? Is there going to be some processor of loans who, in effect, will lose whatever it is going on? And what we will do is we'll have to kind of make outstanding. I do not know enough about the labyrinth provisions associated with this particular statute to see who it is that might have been harmed and to see whether or not that cognizable interest will be strong enough to allow them to set aside this program. And so many years ago, when I first wrote about this issue, I said the problem about Frothingham and Mellon is that essentially it repeals the Constitution uh, with respect to its constraints on the way in which the government gives out money. And that, in fact, once you have Marbury and Madison, which says that the courts can tell the legislatures that they cannot exceed their powers, you cannot use a standing doctrine so that it will make impossible for a large number of challenges to be made. I still think that that is the correct position. And Lord knows whether or not they will bend the doctrine in one way or another. But you can be sure that the standing issue is going to be a preliminary issue that people are going to have to take very seriously if they're going to try to stop a program, which, as I've indicated, has very serious constitutional uh, deficits. Now, Richard, what would you say to um, President Biden and the administration who've said, listen, we have these income cutoffs in place. We're giving more debt relief to people who receive Pell Grants, meaning um, it's targeted assistance. And so, you know, this isn't this is a, this is a good progressive policy. Um, I'm looking at, you know, people who th this is going to people who went to college, right, who have student loans, whether they're graduated or not, but not everyone goes to college. So why do it this way? Why target this population? 
Well, because he's hoping to mine a set of voters who generally have progressive implications. One of the things about the Democrats more generally over the last 40 years is that the coalition that they had, which was once based on blue collar workers, is now basically no longer that in that coalition. What you do is you have large number of minority groups of one kind or another. You have progressive intellectuals of one kind or another. You have all of the race and ethnic based groups on one religion or another. You have all of the feminist issues on one side or another. And you have some very big union leaders, particularly those who are determined to make sure uh, that public schools are not going to be able to get voucher programs, which will defeat union membership in the big cities. So he knows who his targets are. And the lunch bucket crowd, as he would think of them somewhat sneeringly, I suspect, is simply not a group that he thinks he could win over. And so since he's not going to win them over, he's not particularly troubled about knocking them out. Now, it turns out, of course, that some of the people who went to college paid off their loans, their family paid off their loans and all the rest of it. There's no retroactive fitting on this situation. So basically, if you're a scoffer and a deadbeat, you get much better treatment than anything else. We're supposed to have a loan program that will resume on normal basis once this is done, uh, but that will never happen again because the moment you decide that you're going to give loans, everybody's going to say, take the max. Uh, don't worry about the repayments. Slow it up as long as you can. And then when Biden too gets into office, we'll get another forgiveness so that essentially every loan program becomes a grant program with enormous consequences. And for this, of course, I blame President Obama in part. Uh, this is a man who always thinks he's too clever by half and says, you know, banks make some mistake in the way in which they run these programs, the chief one being that they actually insist upon security guarantees and collection because they actually stand to lose. So what you did is you socialized the program, put it into the hands of the government, announced as you always announced that, well, now we have people who are not concerned about property are going to run this in a high-minded fashion, which allows you, one, to make sure that the standards of lending are going to go to pieces because nobody, in effect, is going to give the kind of toughness if they don't care all that much whether the money is repaid or not. And then it's subject to very easy political situation. Think of it in this particular way. Suppose what you said, if this thing were still in private hand, we're going to tell the Chase National Bank and 5,000 community banks that none of them are going to be allowed to collect these loans going forward. Well, that's going to give rise to a real takings problem because what all of these banks will say is this is no different from saying, A, collect the money, and then B, turn it all over to us. It's not even a tax, it's just 100%. And I think you'd win that takings case. So when you take the private bank out, what you do is you're trying to increase the public discretion associated with the public. And this is something which you know going in is always going to happen, which is one of the reasons why it is that you want to restrict government functions to those kinds of activities which are strictly essential to the state, i.e. the provision of public goods. And a public good is something which is generally non-excludable. And a particular loan to a particular student for a particular reason is as private a good as you could ever get. And what the government always done is the dodge they always place is that all of these loans are made for the benefit of the public at large, right? Because if we have an educated student body, everybody will be happy. But then you just take the logic. Well, it turns out we make home mortgages. Why is that? Because if we have a group of individuals who are privately ensconced in residential homes, it's going to make for a better political society. And then, well, it turns out that you will have all sorts of other programs to support agricultural, automobiles, whatever it is. Because if, in fact, people can get some kind of security in any given area of their life, they're going to be happier citizens. So it means, in effect, that everything is a public good. 
under this particular definition, where in fact a public good should be regarded as a road open to all, in which the ideal mode of financing, putting aside complications with national defense, is what they do is they essentially uh, have to raise the money uh, to do this, give a budget, and then collect it back from tolls and sales taxes so as to make sure that it doesn't become a charge on the general revenues. And the Biden administration is so far removed from that kind of procedure. It's simply in its progressive mindset doesn't understand at all uh, that the fact that there is in public importance is not an argument for having public lending. It's an argument for doing it right, which means in most of these cases, what you want to do is to have private lending. Look, there is a reason why I think the single greatest nemesis to the United States is this progressive mindset. Because what they're doing in this particular case is they're privatizing benefits to an elite and socializing costs upon those individuals for whom they have no particular interest. And you should never allow a program to go forward like that. And what it also proves is when you put something forward like the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, it now becomes almost laughable because what you mean is, oh, we're going to build in a fake deficit with respect to that piece of legislation. But there was nothing in that bill which forbade the president of the United States from using his executive powers to create this huge wealth transfer. So uh, the budgetary deficit limitations in a bill which was put forward a couple of weeks ago are already dead. And if you look at the recent administrative statements, you know, what they said is, well, we have this great legislation on board. But by the way, ladies and gentlemen, we don't think that inflation is going to go down very, very much. And we don't think the cost of energy is going to go down very, very much. What they said, in effect, is they've announced the failure of the legislation they put forward so grandly a couple of weeks ago. This is a sign of government that is truly dreadful. I'm going to make the comparison. As you know, I called for Donald Trump's resignation in February of 2017. So I was not late to that party. Uh, but if she was to choose between Trump, who has an outsized personality that gets in his way of good government at every possible stage, and Biden, who's not so great on the personality department either, save for his aviated glasses, I'm going to choose Trump because he would never do the kind of travesty that is going to take place here in part because he is the, what you call a blue collar populist. J.D. Vance is another illustration of people of that particular sort. So they're not going to hurt their own time. But also, I think they have a much better sense of what government is supposed to do in terms of the maintenance of national defense and public order and the control of monopoly than the Democrats, whose basic view is anything that we think will get us reelected is now done in the nature of the public benefit, because we could always find some indirect gain to the nation at large uh, that would justify, at least in their eyes, huge direct expenditures to a favorite class of individuals. Uh, this is really a form of crony capitalism. And the president should be frankly ashamed of the fact that he dresses this up as some kind of a hardship relief program so that these people can get on with their lives while everybody else will find it that much harder to get on with theirs. He never seems to understand that the reduction of taxes for Mr. and Mrs. A will be an increase in taxes for everybody else. He just looks at the beneficiaries and he doesn't look at the damage that are caused to people who are hit by the collateral forces that he generates. You've been listening to the Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Make sure to read Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, published on Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. If you found this conversation thought-provoking, please share it with your friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. See you next time. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution. 
where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.